listening to Clary Vacation on Springfield's Talk 1041. Hey everybody, it's Clarification. Welcome to another beautiful weekend in the Ozarks. I'm your host, James Clary, and today we have a returning guest, a very special guy, Theo Jordan, a pseudonym, but an appropriate one, who lives, he's an East Coast Florida guy with a lot of thoughts. He has a great Substack, very active uh, X account where I actually met him, and he he's a, he's a lawyer, he's a thinker, and uh, he writes about cultural issues which if you're any fan of the show the culture's gone off its rock oh theo hang tight i'm going to play a little clip of a uh, i guess you'd just say this is a gen zer i want to hear this clip and then we'll have you talk about it because you wrote about it just one second i know i'm probably just being so dramatic and annoying but this is my first job like my first nine to five job after college and i'm in person and i'm commuting in the city and it takes me forever to get there there's no way i'm going to be able to afford living in the city right now so that's off the table like if i was able to walk to work and it would it'd be fine but i'm not so it literally takes me like i leave here like i get on the train at 7 30 and i don't get home till like 6 15 earliest and then like i don't have time to do anything i don't i want to shower eat my dinner and go to sleep i don't have time or energy to cook by dinner either like i don't have energy to work out like that's out the window like i'm so upset oh my god <laughs> dude i i know <laughs> i had Adulting not is tough james yeah i know brother i had not seen this i actually i was on your sub stack <laughs> last night and i saw it and it cracks me up because i'm an old dude you know i'm 63 but theo you wrote an article about this it, it kind of sums up the gen z culture right now what what are your thoughts on this yeah good morning james i appreciate you having me back on i uh i feel like a regular here in the ozark you are brother you are man (laughs) (laughs) so you know that story was kind of challenging for me and what i mean by that was i initially encountered the video uh on x or old twitter whatever it is where i spend way too much of my time these days and i saw the video one time i wrote a very short tweet about it and just kind of reboosted it to those who read my post there and I kind of moved on. I didn't give it a lot of thought because to be frank with you, I thought the video would resonate just about the same with everyone, kind of the same way that it hit me. I didn't think there was much of a story to be told because I thought the video told the story fine itself. Well, later that day, I bump into discourse about this video at least a half dozen or a dozen times. And one of them in particular I'm thinking of uh, is in a writer from the Atlantic, Connor Friesdorf. And I like Connor. I think he's one of the few good writers for the Atlantic. Uh, but his piece, and this was uniform across all the discourse I saw throughout the day, was all about how much flack this young lady had taken for this clip that, importantly, she had broadcast herself online. Now, to Connor's credit, it's my understanding that, like, the flames this lady got for this clip went way beyond my understanding at the time. I would later even see an NBC News article about the video and, you know, all the online big meanie trolls. Um, So that just goes to show that it clearly did get disproportionate attention for what was a small story. But what I was struck by James and what ultimately led to me writing my piece, and it's on my Substack as the curious case of the crying girl, was all of the discourse, and, I, and, and this is why I thought it was an important cultural moment, as, as cheesy as that may sound to some people, all of the discourse had completely changed to, I guess, a worthwhile conversation, but one that actually had nothing to do with the underlying story at hand. Mm. Like, we were talking about this clip, 
because this young lady presented herself in such a broken psychological state because she had gotten a nine to five with the long commute. Yeah. The story and that's important here, the salience is why are our youth so ill prepared for adulthood? Mm. But the discourse online, which is so Twitter, it hurts was all about the big meanies and how everybody should be nicer to her. And she's a sweet girl and she's doing the best she can. And capitalism is really what broke her, James. I saw that over and over and over. And, and what I think bothered me the most about it is by avoiding the actual story, by creating this meta story, which of course is all about emotions and feelings and sympathy and weaponized empathy. We're avoiding the discussion we actually need to be having. And I was quick to inject there or interject there that she's trying, right? So she's not exactly a great target for this type of ridicule because unlike a lot of our youth, she is out there trying to find a job. She took the I job agree. offer with yep. the 90 minute commute each way. Yep. So I commend her for that. And in fact, if you see her face while she's talking, it comes across very genuine. And yeah. the most common pushback I got from my later discourse in response to this, you know, sympathy discourse was the idea that these are natural emotions. These are understandable emotions that, you know, any kid who's entering into the workforce is going to go through. So it's like, why are we ripping her so hard for them? And I think that's a valid point that mm-hmm. starts to drift us back into the sympathy lane. And I agree, these are valid emotions. These are natural emotions we all go through. Hell, I went through them when I had my first nine to five with a long commute. Sure. And she's right. You don't have the same amount of time to hang out with your friends and get drunk on Wednesdays. You don't get to wake up and sleep in and play video games on, on Thursdays. We have these things, adults called weekends. Right. And we go out on Friday nights and Saturdays and Sundays. And obviously I'm being condescending, but my point is that's the disconnect here, James. That's the, I'll say it this way, that's the cultural crisis we face. Mm. That in this individual's life, it's not just, oh man, adulting's tough. I'm going to have to work a lot. It's the world is unfair. There's no way I can do this. It's almost like in the vein of oppression, isn't it? Yeah. No, it, it totally is. And it's that cultural Marxism that has, you know, inched its way into our society, primarily through the educational system, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. And, and just to kind of quickly tie a bow on why I felt that piece was really worth drilling into, I shared a story about my great-grandfather, and I can already picture the eye rolls, you know, but <laughs> my great-grandfather laid railroad track. He, he used human strength to lay metal into earth. Wow. And I bet he probably traveled an hour each way to his work. He probably walked. Right. And my point is not that my grandfather is somehow better than my great-grandfather, by the way, somehow uh-huh. better than this young girl. He's not. He came from a different world. Yeah. And what I drilled into in my piece is necessity breeds urgency. Or let's flip that coin around. When we don't have necessity, all of a sudden what are typical trials and tribulations for every human on earth become these insurmountable trauma-seeming obstacles that our youth can't get over. But the reality is nobody made her take that job, right, James? And if that job is that draining for her, which is kind of understandable at 23, you're driving three hours each way, you're not used to working this much then the answer needs to be she finds a new job, not she wails online about how brutal the schedule is, and then we all pour sympathy on her and give her hugs and tell her the tears are okay. If she can't hack that lifestyle, go get a new job. And if in her industry it's difficult to get a job that isn't 90 minutes away, well, welcome to the difficulties of life. I'm sure my great-grandfather would have preferred to do something other than lay railroad track But that's the only way he could put flour and chicken on their table. So as a result of necessity, it's not that he didn't want to go out with his friends. 
It's not that he didn't want to sleep in on Wednesday morning, but he knew if he did those two things, his children wouldn't eat that night. And that kind of lands us back on my favorite quote, which is the, the, the picture above my bio on Twitter. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak, weak men, men, and then weak men create hard times. And we've completed the cycle, and we're starting back over again. Yeah. This young lady, as much as I commend her for trying to walk the right path, is reflective of those weak men. And I think we're seeing the hard times they've created all around us. You know, I just finished uh, Stephen Ambrose. The, well, he's the author, but I've watched it like four times. But The Pacific... Oh my gosh, we just had a transformer blow up over here uh, that show the the Pacific and what those guys in World War II went through. You know, you're talking about your great grandfather, but I mean, just what soldiers endure in combat, I mean, is just, uh, it's just incredible. But I, I think you nailed it, Theo. It's a, it's a cycle that society has gone through many times before. That we will go through again. Absolutely. And so you, we got about a minute left, a little less than a minute. You think we're at the end of that cycle right now. Is that how you feel? I do. I think we are moving. I think the, the weak men created the hard times, 2020 really being, you know, the, the, the crescendo of that. And I think these hard times are now forging our next generation of strong men uh, that will carry us out of this. And I see it already in my daughter's generation. Really? They don't want to be lifelong rabbit activists. They don't want to wail about oppression all the time. They, they're looking for a different path. I went to a, um, I know we're running out of time here, but I went to a uh, event at a Catholic church um, in St. Augustine over the weekend called Nightfire, where they turn off all the lights, light candles, and bring the outside in. Guess who showed up in waves on Saturday night, man? Kids from Flagler College right down the road. Wow, that is... A lot of them, I could tell, weren't lifelong Christians, but they're seeking something new, James. That is awesome. It's clarification. We're uh, joined by Theo Jordan. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Clarification. I'm joined by Thea Jordan, lawyer extraordinaire, substack author from East Florida. And Theo, you wanted to wrap up and say something, finish up about the crying Gen Z yeah, girl. The yeah. last point I, I wanted to make on that is, is, again, I just wanted to sort of drill into why I thought this was such an important conversation, because it seems kind of silly. Why would we have this much discourse over this one little video clip online, right? Right. But one of the comments I got when I was interacting with Connor underneath his article on Twitter uh, with somebody, and I'm reading it right now. He said, why should a 23-year-old think a 90-minute commute each way is a healthy way to live? And I responded, they probably should not, in which case they shouldn't take a job 90 minutes away. And I made the comment that my father drove close to 90 minutes each way. It, it, I, he left 6, 7 in the morning. I saw him 7 o'clock at night. That was his typical routine, and that's when he wasn't traveling for his corporate job or his commitments to the Army. And I mentioned that I never heard him complain about that drive. Connor then fired in and said, had he have complained about his two-hour commute near shot of you, why would that have been bad? And honestly, it was that comment that sort of inspired me to want to go write that piece because my point was it wouldn't have been bad. These are perfectly human emotions. What that story reflects is my father's mindset. He never spent the time to complain about his drive in front of me because he recognized that he did that drive out of necessity, out of his own personal development. It was an honor to him to be able to drive down into the district and go into the Pentagon. Yeah. He was very proud of the career that he had achieved. All of those things sit on one side of the scale, and suddenly that 90-minute drive isn't so insurmountable, right? And this goes back to that idea of necessity. If that young lady who broadcast that video was in a situation where if she quit that job, it would mean inability to pay rent, homelessness, lack of food on the table, etc. I promise you she doesn't post that clip. 
I know nothing about that girl, but I'm willing to guarantee you that if she quits that job, it'll mean returning to mom and dad's house. And I'm also willing to guarantee you that mom and dad have a really nice house. Yeah. And see, that, that is the essence of why that story was important. It reflects a lack of necessity, which leads to an erosion of drive and burn. That's the idea of the weak men creating the hard times. And, and a lot of people say that that quote that I laid out earlier fetishizes war. And I don't think it does, but it naturally lands itself there, doesn't it? Because when you're dodging bullets and digging trench holes to avoid artillery, you don't have a lot of time to worry about being misgendered right. and pronouns <laughs> and racecraft. So it doesn't fetishize war, but war presents the concept the, the cleanest. If that young girl, even at 23, was out of necessity forced to have that job, then the drive wouldn't seem so insurmountable. And that lands at what I believe is the morsel we as a society need to take from this story is why are our children at 23 years old so ill-prepared mentally for the challenges of adulthood? And as long as all we're doing is dumping buckets of sympathy on the table, like we do across every dang front now, it seems, we can never have that discussion. It becomes all about feeling sorry for her, all about these oppressive narratives. And then most importantly here, the target becomes all the big mean people online. But like, no, it's okay to criticize that lady's clip because it's reflective of something in her life failed to get her prepared at that go moment in life. And the reality is we've all had those moments. I too once had to put down my PlayStation and my blankie to go to work, you know, and, and that's why it frustrated me so much. Why can't we have that conversation, James? Why do we have to talk about sympathy and oppression? Well, you know, I think, I think you really, that, that, that meme, that phrase about great men, weak men, and society. I mean, really, if you just look historically, you go back to the greatest generation, which were the men and women, primarily men, though, let's be honest, that fought in combat in World War II. And they beget the baby boomers, of which I am just yep. on the edge. I'm almost a little too young, but I am a baby boomer. I was born in 60. And we were given a lot by our parents because that the greatest generation when they came back from the war man the economy you know we'd come out of the depression for whatever reason you know some of the leftist historians will tell you it was fdr's policies i don't believe that but anyway they created this wealth and it was passed on to us the baby boomers although just i'm going to raise my hand i didn't get an inheritance but a lot of my friends did they inherited businesses and they inherited money and then their children the children of the Bingo. baby boomers, which I guess would be what, Gen X and uh, Gen Z, their grandchildren. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's you. Yep. Um, then they were given kind of a soft look. My kids definitely had a softer life than I did. And I had a softer life than my father did. You know, my father grew exactly. up in a little apartment. He, he went to medical school. He had to take out loans. He joined the service, was in Panama. But, you know, he didn't complain about it, you know. But as a... Right. And why... And, and, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, didn't mean no. I was just going to say, and the key is to focus in on why didn't he complain. And that goes back to the comment that kind of triggered me writing that piece of, you know, why are these emotions? Why are you criticizing these emotions? Aren't these natural emotions? That's not the point. Right. Yes, they are. The question becomes... Why did the greatest generation, who felt them as well, not lead with them, not have them control, not have those emotions consume everything versus our current youth, as you see in this video, 
are unable to get over them. And that, and I love the way you laid out that cycle in American history because it all happened in a compressed period in yeah. one century. We yeah. had the greatest generation. They were dodging bullets and digging, digging foxholes. They weren't worried about pronouns and all this cultural crap that's got us so bogged down. Then you had those baby boomers who inherited an easier life. They lavished an overly easy life onto my generation in the roaring 90s yep. where our biggest problems became social problems that we were inventing ourselves. And if you go back to the famous oil paintings on the fall of Rome, they show exactly that. They show a period of conquest. They show a period of a warrior state where the civilization is controlled by the most physically adept, the warrior society. Then they show a civilized society where the managerial class starts to have the most power. You get to a point where the upper level, the upper echelon of a controlling society are no longer the big bad mamajamas with the spears who can go win the wars. It's the monopoly looking guy with the top hat. He's now managing the assets for the society. The strongest members of that society are no longer at the top of the, the, the hierarchy, if you will. And then the final chapter of that is the fall of Rome. It's the famous oil painting. It's a room full of narcissism and hedonism with half naked people rolling all over each other in this big orgy. And they're unable to get anything done as a society anymore. And guess what? You won't find a lot of those warriors in that room, right? It's a very natural progression and you can see it playing out in America. And I watched it in my generation. You saw it then trickle down to the kids, my peers, failed miserably in how they raise children. This is helicopter parenting. Yep. This is participation trophy. This is life is supposed to be fair. And us adults will intervene everywhere we can to make it fair. We're never going to let you struggle. We're going to nerf all the corners and close the oven door so you never burn your finger. And as a result, we have kids who don't know if they're a boy or a girl. You know, men are now pregnant. All this race craft and hate craft. We've got kids who can't work. All these problems come together. And I know it the totality of this all makes it seem like I'm speaking down to society. Like I figured out the greater game and I'm better than everyone. No, I'm not at all. I just, for whatever reason, am able to see beyond the emotion, beyond the sympathy to the nuts and bolts that are actually causing these problems. And, and this tying back into that piece I wrote, in my opinion, comes from my father. The reason I have the mentality I have is that I role modeled, I modeled and adopted the mentality of my father yeah. who did the same from his grandfather and his father before him. And, and I think we've got to wonder what, what changed James? Why is what we're modeling and championing and role modeling down onto our youth? Why are we mimicking behaviors and cultural norms that are objectively destructive and deleterious? And why did the greatest generation not do the same? It ultimately ties back into that quote, man, it ties into necessity. Necessity mm -hmm. is the burn that forges us as human beings. And when society artificially intervenes, move all hurdles to make it so you can never burn your finger on the oven door, then you never learn anything. And if you cast that thinking out to where we are in this malaise that's really captured all of Western society, they go hand in hand. Now, and now is it a result of calculated decisions up high? I believe so. But you could step away from that and look at it purely as that fall of Rome cycle. Yeah. We aren't having these problems in the 1920s, man, because in the 1920s, people didn't have enough to eat. You know, there is one I always tell people, I'll just give you one personal analogy. I was a, you know, I was an F up when I was in college. And, you know, I... I majored in, in beer drinking and girl skirt chasing. You know, that's what I did. Oh, and at some point, my parents finally made the decision to cut me off. 
And I always tell people it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It's that necessity word that you mentioned. Once I had no outside funds flowing in, guess what? I, by necessity, had to get a job and I had to work. Yep. And, you know, eventually. Yep. And if that job had yeah. an hour and a half drive, it probably it wouldn't matter. have overwhelmed you, James. Right. Because that was your ticket. And you didn't have another one. And, you know, to, to show that I'm not trying to be some white knight here, uh, I, I, I mentioned in that own piece that I've struggled with this. I did yeah. not come from a world of necessity. I came from a world where my mother and father provided a safety net to me that if I fell completely flat on my face, I wasn't going to end up at a homeless shelter. Right. I wore Air Jordans when I was in eighth grade. Those <laughs> shoes cost a lot of money for an 11-year-old, right. right? And I mentioned in there that I felt that. I felt that whittling process of my own natural burn because the necessity drives the hunger, man. And yeah. there's no doubt that I even lacked some of the hunger of my own father because I wasn't driven by the same necessity that he was. So I guess the, the, the million dollar question becomes, how do we reverse it? Uh, you know, yeah. I don't know. That's the key. We can't allow this cycle to keep spinning. Well, and we can't be, you know, so hard on the girl. Really, what what was the situation or the, the cultural push that caused her to feel this way? Why wasn't she better Correct. prepared? Why didn't somebody tell Correct. her, look, this is what it's going to be like? Or maybe even make her experience some of that before she got out of college. That's the key. See, you hit it right on the head. I'm willing to bet that that young lady at 23 years old has never had to face adversity like this. And when I say adversity, I mean the now demand that she shelf her own personal, let's call them selfish interests, who yeah. she wants to hang out with, what she wants to do today for the responsibilities of adulthood. The video screen that this was brand new to her. It was her first splash in the pool. And so again, it's a hard thing to criticize because I commend her for jumping in the pool. Yeah, definitely. She plunged into adulthood. Good for you, ma'am. But somebody in your past, failed you miserably because they did not have you prepared for the fact that yes, once you took a nine to five with a job, your weeks were going to be short, full of work, and you'd only have the weekends to hang out. That shouldn't have been a traumatic experience for her, James, yep. but it was, and that's because somebody failed to prepare for it. Absolutely. It's clarification. We'll be right back. It's for the time. Hey, everybody. It's Clarification. I'm your host, James Clary. That's Florida Time by Bob Seeger because we have Florida Man, Theo Jordan, on the phone. Good Theo, time. yeah, I don't I know. It's kind of a weird start. But, you know, Sarah picks some music, Theo. So. I never heard that song before, I, but I it was it. recommended. I like the way it picked up. Yeah, yeah, it's I good. I got the blood pounding. There you go. You know, you made a comment in the previous uh, segment about the painting, the oil painting of the Roman civilization. And it's, isn't it interesting that. Roman, the the Roman civilization has been in hashtags and been trending on X. And I think it's this, I don't know, I want to get your opinion on it, but I think it's this backward look that, you know, young people have to pass. And I think it's great that they look at history. One thing that always jumps out at me as being a, a restaurateur and a former chef was that one of the leading factors in the fall of the Roman civilization is that they had elevated chefs, cooks, to celebrity status. This happened in Rome, in the Roman Empire, wow. that chefs became celebrities, and they said this was one of the precursors to the fall. And I totally get bread it. Bread and circuses. You know, yes, chefs and circuit bread and circuses. 
I'm just a cook, man. I don't. And, you know, the whole celebrity chef thing is just another indicator that our society's on decline. But anyway, give me some more thoughts on on the comparisons between what did happen in the fall of Rome and why. I don't know. Do you have any any uh, understanding as to why that's been trending? Roman civilization. Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm yeah. not a scholar of that uh, history period, but it's one that's long fascinated me. But, you know, I think it's really interesting how you cast that. The, the rise of chefs, right? Mm-hmm. Step away from chefs and think about celebrity culture and then cast that into our current time. Prior to maybe the last year or two, where I think we are going through some seismic changes in American culture, ones that aren't spoken about on our mainstream airwaves, so they're tough to get a sense of. But prior to the last couple of years where the world kind of turned upside down and this public burst out of all this craziness occurred, we had gotten to a point where the, the almost saints of our society had become celebrities, right? Yep. It's Alyssa Milano posting about, oh, I don't think, you know, we should tell sons anymore that they should take care of their mom when the husband goes out of town. It's so condescending. It implies that us women can't take care of themselves. And yet millions of our people are listening to that, like, you know, praise be Alyssa, praise be Alyssa, and listening to that. And the reality is, who are you taking your advice from, man? You really want to take life guidance from Ariana Grande? Yeah. You know, so LeBron James. LeBron James, sure. Sports stars, musicians, Hollywood. These are some of the most morally corrupt and bankrupt yes. um, uh, sex or, or segments of our society. And yet they became almost gods in an increasingly atheistic society or American culture, right? Mm. And I don't think those you can separate those two things. So going back in time all the way to the Roman Empire, you're seeing that same cycle because the cycle, the picture on my bio, is something that has repeated across human civilization time and time again. And I think it tells us something important about the way of man and the deleterious impact of the state trying to come in and get rid of all the ways of man and these utopic pursuits of progress, right? And Mm. inclusivity and all this stuff. It's like we, we normalize the fringes and villainize the middle and the end result of that will never work. And when you mentioned people talking about the Roman civilization a lot, as you may know, there was a poll that went around Twitter a couple of weeks ago, and it was like, if you're male, yeah. how often do you think about the Roman civilization? Right. You think about it more than once a day. And so many lines in there were wives who had gone up to their husbands like, hey, do you think about the Roman civilization <laughs> every day? And they'd be like, yeah, multiple times. <laughs> and they meant it dead serious. And there was a lot of jaw drop vibe of like, why are so many men thinking about the Roman civilization yeah. multiple times? But I think it's because it is an innate awareness that we are repeating a lot of the same things. That's you know, right. that term bread and circuses yep. is, is very salient to our current time. And for anybody who doesn't, that, that term doesn't register. It's a, it's a phrase that describes the final stage of the fall of Rome. This is where that cycle presents the clearest is the Roman empire. And in that final stage, the state was focused on bread and circuses. We yes. wanted to feed the people so they wouldn't starve. And then we wanted to entertain them. And we entertained them because it kept them from studying and analyzing how the whole damn civilization was deteriorating before their eyes. Cast back to America, two million plus documented illegals coming across the border every year. We think it some experts think it could be as high as 10 million not captured and, and counted. Right. We've got this globalism thing sort of melting away the bonds that make America who we are executing the constitution as i wrote about on substack yep. we've got all this crazy gender woo and queer plus activism and racecraft, and all this is consuming our airwaves no one's talking about the economy no one's talking about the fact that BRICS has now 
surpassed the G7 in gross domestic product. Nobody's talking about China becoming the biggest trade partner above the U.S. by a long mile across the globe. The relationship between Putin and Z, the things that actually matter, right? Instead, we're talking about genderqueer in kindergarten classrooms, bread and circuses, man. There was another guy, I don't know who it is, some sort of scholar, but he wrote a theory that I described earlier, so I'll stay very short on this, but it's that idea of the maintenance and the control of the resources. In that hunter-gatherer society, it is inherently your strongest specimens who dominate because they're out hunting. Right. As you progress as a civilization and you get the monopoly top hat guy managing the resources for everybody, it starts to erode. And I think, to kind of tie this all up, I think the reason, well, I know the reason that so many, particularly modern men, are fixated on thinking about the Roman Empire or the collapse of it, really, is because they're recognizing that something similar is happening in our current time. Mm. You know, I commented one other time uh, on a show I was on that almost without fail, the majority of philosopher types, particularly male philosopher types, I'm thinking about those guys on Twitter who have the Greek sculpture heads, right? right. That's their profile pic. There's a whole, yeah. there's, a, there's a crew yes. of this. And I like yeah. a lot of these people. Sargon of Akkad. And yes. 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 Yeah. And dude, like 80% plus of them ultimately end up crashing down on, we need to return to being hunter gatherers. Now it's kind of a silly, well, it's not kind of, it's a very silly premise in our modern digital age, because the reality is we're just never going back to hunter gatherers. Right. So it's as unrealistic as these idiot Berkeley people who dream of the state managed utopia. Mm. It just ain't happening. But I think there's an important thing to drill into on why the mind lands there. Or maybe a better way to say that is it's understandable why the mind lands there. Mm. Because those minds who have thought this out enough and they're able to see the erosion beyond the bread and circuses are realizing that this is not a good thing for mankind. And a lot of these people, James, end up leaving the grid, going and building some shelter somewhere, yeah. building their own solar panels and all this and that. And of course, I think that's strange. I like technology and sports stadiums. Sure. But the reality is I understand the thinking because if you disconnect from all this Western decadence, it does sort of allow you to once again find the ways of man. It's freedom. And to tie this back into that story of the crying girl, when those forces, when having to chop wood for a fire, wash your clothes in a river, hunt rabbits for food, right? It sounds corny, but when those forces exist, it refines the man. It yeah. strengthens the man. It makes the individual stronger. So I, I understand why brains ultimately crash down there. And that's why, in, in my opinion, that's why the Roman Empire is such a trendy point of discourse today, because a lot of people are looking around and saying, holy, you know what? We are that room with the half naked orgy going on now. That's Western society. And it's, you know, it's strange. Another aspect, and we, as you know, we just got a few seconds left, but another aspect in the Roman uh, civilization was the androgyny was more yes. mainstream, which just as it's happening yes. in today's society, it's the very... Almost uniformly, when you look at the collapse of these civilizations on that um, weak men make hard times, yep. there is queer plus activism and gender admorphism rears its head every uh, single time. And that's not by coincidence. That's crazy. It's clarification with Theo Jordan. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's clarification. I'm your host, James Clary. Welcome back. By the way, I wanted to mention you can find all of our shows at ksgf.com. Go to the 
podcast icon and click on clarification and you can find this show and any past shows. Theo, you had something you wanted to talk about and I find it uh, fascinating. I know our audience will just just riff on a little bit, man. I appreciate it, sir. One, excuse me. One of the topics that I have spent the most time on and about the last year, let me phrase this the right way, has been a casting of our current societal quagmire into a chessboard where on one side of that chessboard stands the tenets of this new leftist scripture, be it the queer ideology, the gender ideology, the racecraft, the hatecraft, the uh, anti-capitalism, you know, utopia by the state. Mm, there yeah. is this one force standing on the left side of the chessboard. And if, if you cast it into a chessboard, who's standing on the other side? Standing on the other side in a majority Christian nation is a set of ideology because they both are. There is not a right or wrong. They're just different doctrines for different people. But it is a doctrine or a set of ideology, worldviews, mindsets are embodied by the tenets of Christianity. And that's because America is a majority Christian nation. And that, that phrase really makes some people bristle. And I chuckle at that because facts are facts, right? And facts don't care right. too much about your feelings. America is a majority Christian populace. And I don't mean take America, slice out the religious, and of the religious people, the majority are Christian. No, of our entire population as one pizza, Christians are a majority slice. If you add Jewish, if you add Islam, if you add other religions in, there isn't a very large slice left of atheists in American society. Correct. And I'm going somewhere with this, and in fact, these thoughts are are embodied in a piece I wrote on uh, theojordan.substack.com called Scripture from an Atheist. And it's got a picture of the progress flag, the flag that I just can't stand, leftist cultural takeover <laughs> flag, I call it, in front of a very famous cathedral. Right. And I talk about the dichotomy between the style of thinking, the worldview on one side of that chessboard, and what rests on the other. And what a lot of people don't realize when they read that piece, they think I'm prophesizing for Christianity, is I am the atheist writing that piece. I'm a lifelong non-believer. I grew up in a very heavily Christian world. I grew up in a not very religious family. And as a result, I grew up without religion, faith, spirituality, any of that in my life, and I remain so today. Mm. But I'm married to a devout Catholic. We're members of our Catholic church, and we're raising both of our children under the faith. And a lot of, the peop a lot of people that I interact with, they can't they can't make those two go together. It seems intellectually dishonest or inconsistent of why do you preach all these values? Why do you write these threads online talking about night fire and talking about the benefits of the tenets of Christianity if you don't believe in it yourself? Why have you never had the conversations with your own children to tell them your honest views on this? Why do you, in essence, lie to them? And I've written a lot of threads online and also in that piece that I referenced explaining exactly why and where I ultimately land on is why would I want to take that from them? One of the most profound moments of my life when I was a late teen, early 20, and I was a bit more of a, I don't want to say a militant atheist, but I was eager to engage that conversation with people. And I'll be honest, I'll be candid. I wanted to show them why they were wrong. I wanted mm. to disprove their own views because I felt so confident in my own. Been there. And my yep. father, my father sat me down. I mean, he didn't sit me down. It wasn't a shakedown. But he yeah. said to me, he said, son, for a lot of people, religion fills a hole, a void. You're very fortunate in life. You don't have a lot of the, the lacking or the needs that a lot of people on this rather cruel rock do. And for a lot of those people, they fill that need with religion, with spirituality, with the tenets that in essence 
can comprise a moral guidebook. Mm. And his final sentence to me that changed my life was, you wouldn't want to see a world where that didn't exist. And it was like a light bulb moment for me. Wow. I thought, if religion is doing good things for people's lives, why in the world would I want to reach out and destroy that? Why would I want to take that for them? And so that started me on a very different path. I've never changed my actual views. I'm a space guy, not a faith guy. But it <laughs> uh -huh. led to me realizing I was doing wrong to society by going out and trying to strip that from people, which is how I ended up dating a devout Catholic and how I'm now raising kids under the faith. So where am I going with all this? I'm going with all of this. Where I'm headed is that if you believe we are under a revolutionary moment, you don't have to believe it's Marxism, although I believe it's a flavor of that, as James Lindsay has detailed quite well. Yeah. But if you believe we are going under a revolutionary, almost sort of societal, but it's government-led, let's not fool ourselves, overthrow in America. If you wanted to revolt or revolution against America, what is the top fundamental structure you'd need to attack? The church. The, the church. You go yeah. back to Karl Marx's dogma. He talks about that explicitly. He says in order to achieve the, the utopia, the, the better way of man, we must replace the church with the state mm -hmm. because those community moorings, those community foundations and organizations like the family unit, like the church, they are a bulwark against communist-based ideologies, the collective-based ideologies. Mm -hmm. they, they foment individual strength, community strength, and entities that strengthen society and strengthen individuals without needing the state. So in order for the state to become God, if you will, because that's kind of where this ultimately lands, that goes back to Marx's doctrines, we have to get rid of those moorings in order to achieve that state-run utopia. And if you and this may sound kind of crazy to some people listening, and, and I'm okay with that. But if you allow this to kind of germinate around in your mind and you think about some of the stuff that's going on in our current cultural moment, in my opinion, it just pops. What do we see trending across all social media all the time? Christian nationalism, mm. Christofascism. Yeah. Think about that word real quick, Christofascism. Just yesterday, the Tennessee Manifesto finally leaked after, what was it, eight oh, months? Oh, I didn't even know that. Wow. Okay. Yesterday, man, I didn't either until I saw a random tweet. So real quick, I, I know we don't have a ton of time, but so in, in that shooting in Nashville where a queer plus activist, a trans boy, I guess she's a female living as a boy, went back to her old Christian school and murdered six people, including the schoolmaster, the headmaster and their son. Something that very few people know because the truth of the story was hidden from us, unlike every other mass shooting like Buffalo's, where their manifestos circle the globe in a matter of hours. Right. One fact that a lot of people are still unaware of is Audrey Hale left in the middle of that massacre to go into a separate chapel and put multiple rounds into the stained glass image of Adam, the first oh, man. Wow. That's not a coincidence, and it reveals where her head was in that shooting. This is why those who have been paying attention knew what was going to be on that manifesto from origin, and it also told us very clearly why, A, we were prevented from seeing it, and why, B, the Truman Show immediately cooked up the Tennessee Three, those jokers talking about gun control and racism, the guys who were completely acting, you know, play acting like they were 1960s LARPing, but they have <laughs> videos from 2016 where they don't talk anything like that. They're invited to the White House. They're on Good Morning America. They're run all around America so that we'll talk about the Tennessee Three instead of the Tennessee Six. Oh. And now that we finally saw the manifesto, which it was leaked through Stephen Crowder, and it's frustrating as hell that it would take eight months in a Stephen Crowder leak for us to even see it. Really? The yeah. mayor's office, as, as well as Nashville police, 
have announced they're opening an investigation into how it got leaked. I posted last night that I think they should change the investigation on why it took eight months and a Crowder leak for us to, exactly, to read it at all. Exactly, yes. But, right? Yeah. So what it ultimately revealed was exactly what we thought it would reveal. She talked a lot about anti-racist dogma and white kids and those spoiled, privileged white kids. It was a whole lot of race-based you know, fuel in there, but it also represented the very tenets of this queer plus activism, the very language we hear across our airwaves all the time, James, of Christian nationalism, Christo fascism, right? Mm -hmm. The reason this story was hidden eight months ago is every single wheel of the left's machine was being greased by what I call the moral versus the monsters. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and we don't actually have to talk about the issue at all because we're good and they're bad. I mean, this got so out of control that us here in Florida enacted law to not allow lessons on gender ideology in K through three. Those are really young kids. They don't need to be told they can change from a boy to a girl. Right. This was nationally called don't say gay. And the national impression was given off to everybody that we hate gay people in Florida. We hate black people in Florida. Hillary Clinton and the NAACP putting out travel advisories that everybody's <laughs> in danger. The reason that manifesto didn't come out eight months ago, James, is if we had read it back then, it would have immediately shattered this moral versus the monsters casting, which is greasing everything. Because once we are forced to pull away from that casting, from this morality binary of if you don't agree with my position, you're evil, then we have to look at the issue. Then we have to analyze the fact pattern and the actual policy. And when we do that, we come to realize that the agenda that even the establishment DNC is running is not supported by 80% plus of the American people. The only reason it continues to advance is because if you don't agree with it, you're racist, you're misogynist, you're transphobe, you're homophobe, you're conspiracy theorist, you're a science denier, you're a fascist, you're authoritarian, the end of our democracy, whatever flavor fits the current mold, but it all drives it back in the same direction. And I, I know this was sort of an all over the place rant, so no, I apologize. No, it's great. I think, great. Keep going. I, I think it's important to analyze that casting Look around you at headlines, at propaganda we see from voices like Joy Reid on MSNBC airwaves, You're, and yeah. notice this wedge they are driving between what are Christian values, Christian-based values. You don't have to believe in God. I don't. Right. But there's a reason that I have a whole lot more in common with your average Christian than your average progressive. Yep. It's not even close. And there's also a reason that the chief chaplain at Harvard is an atheist who wrote a book, Good Without God. So when Christian students show up at Harvard, they hey, welcome. We're thrilled to have another Christian member of our student body. I'm going to arrange an appointment for you to go meet our chief chaplain, and he's going to help erode you into believing you're good without God. I mean, I wish I was making that up, but in my opinion, it's a clear reflection of the cultural attack we're under, this revolution attempt or this social engineering attempt, if the word revolution scares you away, of trying to dismantle and invert and change the power structure in a majority Christian environment. And it's not coincidental that the tenets of queer theory, of gender theory, of racecraft, of anti-racism, they all clash fundamentally with the tenets of Christianity. That piece, Scripture from an Atheist, talks about a line of Scripture. God created you the way they are. God created boys and girls in the image of perfection. In order for that piece of Scripture to be true, it summarily defeats gender theory because gender theory says God messed up really bad. And there's a whole lot of boys and girls that were born in the wrong body. Yeah. And we need to give them drugs and give them surgery so we can change the outer shell, the exterior to match their real them gender affirming care, right? 
help them find the real them. It's a Gnostic spirit, ultimately. Mm. It's the idea that there is a better man separate from the physical body, which ties right back to Marxist praxis, yep. Marxist thought. But if you believe God created you perfect, then no, there are no children living in the wrong body. And so for the state, via its diversity, equity, and inclusion organ, which we could spend a whole nother afternoon talking about, James, and maybe we should sometime, yeah, we, through we that engine, to. we are now told that the very tenets of Christian scripture are bigotry. Right? <clears throat> we have the ladies, the sisters of perpetual indulgence who are devil nuns, who mock Christianity, that is their role, being celebrated as part of Pride Night at Dodger Stadium. Why? Why is the chief chaplain at Harvard an atheist? Why are devil nuns part of Pride? When you lay those two on the table, it's impossible not to see the casting that I laid out. Absolutely. Man, That <laughs> this was perfect. It's clarification with Theo Jordan. We will see you next week.